Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast focusing, as usual, on the pop culture of the freaking Middle Ages. Today we're covering all things Arthuriana, including the various King Arthur-related films, up to the current release, The Green Knight. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, the verbose. I'm Brian Hurt, wearing a green girdle more for self-confidence than for protection. I'm Al Baker, reaching into a lake, not knowing what I'll find. And I'm David Crowe from the mystical land of Den of Geek. Ah, thanks guys for coming on here. You folks might remember Al from our Conspiracy Theories episode number 49 in keeping with our new regime. It was season two of Pretty Much Pop here. We're kind of using a rotating bunch of co-hosts. So Al is filling in in that capacity. But we have Brian, one of our original gangsters back here today. I wouldn't let Mark do a podcast about the Green Knight without having me on. So I just elbowed my way back in. Say, Brian, what you're, you have the most scholarly background with this. Yeah, that's totally pushing it. Let's just move on to David. David Crow, Den of Geek. I had read one of your articles for another episode. I'd reached out to you. You suggested this topic with the Green Knight coming out in particular. We'll link to a good article that you had written on some past Arthur movies. Can you give us a little more of your enthusiasm, your background with this topic? Sure, of course. Well, like I feel, I'm sure everyone on this conversation has done. I grew up reading King Arthur tales and I always found them really interesting. But why I circled back and thought this was a great topic was one, I saw this movie and it's such a weird mind trip in a perfectly satisfying way that is reflected in its C minus cinema score, The Green Knight. And <laughs> oh, wow. But I, I love the movie and I talked to David Lowry and he had some really interesting thoughts about why he wanted to make an Arthurian legend into a film. And I've been fascinated at how Hollywood has struggled, especially in the last 20 years, at adapting King Arthur movies. So this seemed like the perfect time to dig into it now that someone's finally made a good one. All right. So, Al, due to COVID things, were you actually able to see The Green Knight? I know that was a plan. I was not. The release got push back and then canceled altogether. So I've been unable to see the film. I did last night instead watch the 1981 Excalibur in preparation. And going from what I've seen from the trailers, firstly, I want to say that the Green Knight does look awesome and I'm very excited to actually see it. But I think there are interesting parallels with the 1981 film. And I'm hoping that we can have some interesting conversations about how, at least to me, it looks like the Green Knight is a return to that kind of form in a post-Lord of the Rings, post-Game of Thrones cultural context. So I think there's going to be a lot to talk about, even though I have not seen the film in question. I am also authentically British, which maybe helps. I was going to say, how about that accent, everybody? <laughs> Mark really pulled out all the stops, getting a true descendant of King Arthur, well, I guess going all the way back to the Romans, if you believe the Green Knight poem. Not only a descendant of King Arthur, but I actually live in the part of England where the Green Knight is uh, supposed to be set and have lived very close to the, the kinds of woods that the initial, uh, the, the woods and the countryside that the original poem talks about. So you've been to the Green Chapel. How is it? It's not as green as it used to be, probably. Tourist trip. There's a concrete factory there now. <laughs> so I'm anticipating that a lot of listeners here will not have specifically seen the Green Knight. We'll definitely get to it, but let's deal with Arthuriana more Generally, I was not aware until researching this, even my daughter was asking me, like, what is the source material? What do you read? <laughs> and I was unclear about that. I mean, Le Mort d'Arthur, which is what, 12th century? Brian, you said you read this in the original Old English or Middle English? No, I read Green Knight in the Middle English. I, Mort d'Arthur, I read in translation. Mort d'Arthur is written in French, Mark, and the clues in the title. <laughs> oh, man, I was going to go easy on Mark, but I didn't. So I actually sat through a whole like great courses course on Arthurian literature to see what is the source. And the truth is, we don't know what the sources are. These were stories that were going around 
for a long time. The figure himself, if he existed, probably did. Somebody with a name that was something like Arthur, it's back in like the 5th century. So the Roman Empire has fallen, withdrawn from the colonies like Britain, and so that that's why there's all the chaos going on. But whoever this person was, he certainly wouldn't have been called a king. There was not plate mail, jousting, and all these things that were like from 500 years. You know, Mort Artur is, I think, close to a thousand years written later that is gathering a lot of these traditions together. I think it's interesting you mentioned Le d'Arthur. It was written, as you said, I believe in the 15th century. So it was actually written after Sir Gawain, as I like to say it, and the Green Knight, or it was put down. But there's even debate over who wrote Le d'Arthur. It's written by a man named Sir Thomas Mallory, but there are several people in that century who could have been Sir Thomas Mallory. Obviously, he was kind of synthesizing a variety of hundreds of years old of Arthurian tales at that point, including Lancelot, which comes from France. The most popular theory from what I gather is that he was a turncoat in the War of the Roses. So for Game of Thrones fans, it's like that, but real, no dragons. And he was sitting in prison after switching sides in the War of the Roses. And he was basically writing down what he thinks an orderly society needs to be. And that's why you have this chivalric romance, this interpretation of Arthur. And then that's kind of influenced our modern understanding of Arthur, which, of course, is very different from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from 100 years before this and anything written 1,000 years before that, or not written for that matter. Yes, and I also didn't realize how much this was a property of all of Europe, not just England. I mean, of course, the historical Arthur would have been actually fighting the people that are the Saxons that eventually became the English. So he's Cornish or Welsh, both groups kind of claim him. But just the fact that, you know, Lancelot, the Mortartur that focuses a lot on Lancelot from France, apparently this was a property that sucked up neighboring properties. Like, so it's a really a mythos that Merlin, there were independent stories of Merlin already going around. And eventually that's got added to the Arthur story. Lancelot wasn't added until hundreds of years afterwards. Parsifal, Percival and Tristan and Isolde, these were, I think, pre-existing, at least Tristan was a pre-existing German narrative that also got added to Arthur. Like, oh, they were roundtable knights too. <laughs> so there's way more story than can be told in any one film. So most of these films that we have, you know, sort of focus on this, things that are related to La Morte d'Arthur through the T.H. White, Once a Future King, which is a book from the 50s, focusing on this Camelot and the, the love triangle and the death of Arthur, which apparently was not even supposed to be the name of that book. That was like the, the title of the last chapter and the publisher screwed up and called it that. And that's what everybody, you know, has been calling it for this long. All that introduction. All right. So spill us into modern retellings of this since the advent of film. And of course, there are more books in like the Mists of Avalon, these feminist takes and multiple TV shows. David, do you want to kind of start us with the rundown of at least the modern films that we should care about. I saw there was a 1950s King Arthur and the Knights Round Table movie, which I watched a trailer for. I'm like, I'm not sitting through this. This looks like it was really cool at the time and it's going to be painful now. But, you know, at least by the 60s, we have things that are close enough to our sensibility to be palatable. Yeah, I can like a movie from the 1950s. That was not one of them. I think it's interesting to talk about how these movies or these stories are recontextualized not even only every generation, but every era to fit this sensibility. So that was a big, gaudy epic in the era of the big, gaudy epics of yesteryear when Hollywood was worried about television, kind of like today. I would say a good one to start with for me would be, and it's not my favorite by a long shot, is the Warner Brothers film adaptation of Camelot. I feel like a lot of younger people today, maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast have not watched Camelot, but I feel like the version that everyone might be familiar with is the 1975 comedy, which is almost a direct reaction to Camelot, which is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because that is a hilarious movie. They're obsessed with not singing about Spamalot. And it's a reaction to Hollywood in the death throes of the old Hollywood epic, which would be musicals, westerns period pieces. Well, here was a musical period piece adapted from Warner and Lowe, who did uh, My Fair Lady. And the same studio that made My Fair Lady made the movie version of Camelot. And it came out, I want to say it was in 1967. It starred Richard Harris, 
who was apparently drunk all the time on set. Everyone hated working with him. Vanessa Redgrave, that's where she met Franco, who played the Lancelot, and they began their fabled affair if you followed the new Hollywood gossip stories. But the movie, it has some very beautiful songs, but it came in at the late 60s. So this is around the time of The Graduate, an easy rider, and Bonnie and Clyde, and the Vietnam War. And here's this big, splashy musical like they used to make it three hours length, a very sprawling, overly done film. And it just flops at the box office. And it was the beginning of the death knell of the musical. And then you see more modern stories, kind of specifically Monty Python, respond to that. I guess to give it to the room, what's everyone's relationship with the uh, Monty Python? I've seen it probably 30 times. It's a far more important part of modern Britain's cultural landscape than the King Arthur mythos writ large. It is, without a shadow of a doubt, the first introduction and the deepest introduction that most British people have to Arthuriana in general. Like, you meet somebody on the street, they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you that Lancelot and Guinevere had an affair. You meet someone in the street, they will absolutely be able to tell you what the Knights Who Say Knee wanted installed in their forest. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. It's not just a fascination on this side of the Atlantic. It's one of those movies that I've seen in a theater that had a bar in the middle of it. You know the movie well enough that you can like go get a drink and come back and not have missed anything. Even though it's done for laughs, I think there is a such a reverence for the source material. I've thought that about other... Looking at where Mel Brooks succeeds and where he fails. It's He succeeds when he's poking fun at something he loves, and he fails when he's poking fun at something he doesn't entirely get. And clearly those those Monty Python guys... They knew their literature enough to put together something that was clearly reflecting of that. So it's not maybe not my favorite Monty Python of all time. Maybe my name has forced me to like Life of Brian more than I should. But I would tend to think if I like looking, like doing my homework for this show, like there were some movies I just refused to rewatch. Mark, I don't know if you remember this. And for David and Al, Mark and I went to the same high school. I had one teacher who punted towards the end of the year and just showed us Camelot in 40-minute installations for like the last week of school. And I just won't watch that movie again. I absolutely cannot and will not. So I admit that was one, David, that maybe someday, but I wasn't getting ready for this show. I watched that for the first time, the original musical going up to this. Starting with my daughter, who you know is into musicals and might audition with one of these songs at some point for something, and she bailed about halfway through. That is just it was too much. But it actually, I thought it got quite a bit better. Like I found the end part actually kind of moving, whereas early, where it's just him being silly and a lot of the fun was just this is Richard Harris. It's Dumbledore as a young person. Can you see Dumbledore in his occasional expression? That was the like the most interesting thing about it. For this whole beginning part where they're just gallivanting around and it is difficult to have a Lancelot who's not just like this big, blonde, unappealing goon to actually put Richard Gere in that part in First Night later, like is even worse, like to have this American romantic icon. I don't know if there's a good way to do that character at all, but I certainly didn't like the way it was done in the original Camelot. I have seen Camelot several times. I do love My Fair Lady, so I do think you can do those kind of musicals on screen well. I am not crazy about Camelot. I did go back for this and read the Roger Ebert review. Surprise, he hated it. But in it, he said this about uh, Franco as Lancelot. He said something to the fact that he was irritating, vain, and just absolutely grating on every molecular level for this critic. And then he said, it took me a day to realize that's what Lancelot's supposed to be. So I guess he did a good job. Something about the 1981, about Excalibur, in relation to Lancelot in particular, something that's really awful about that film, and I'm really interested to know how far this is reflected or not in The Green Knight, is that there is really no attempt at any kind of characterization for any of the characters. They exist to kind of fulfill their mythic tropes. So Lancelot doesn't get a chance to be irritating because all he is is handsome and Guinevere's in love with him. And there's no dialogue to establish any of this. It's just taken as read that like, okay, this is Lancelot. As soon as you hear his name, you know exactly who he is, what he's going to do and why it's a problem. And that's also something, actually speaking of Roger Ebert, I looked at Roger Ebert's review of of Excalibur and that was his complaint about that film is that the direct characterization was 
awful and lacking. And I wonder if in David's view, like, is that always going to be a problem? If you're running up against trying to depict these mythic, almost necessarily two-dimensional characters, is it just better to do it in a schematic way rather than trying to breathe too much life into them? I guess, yeah, what we're talking about is how larger than life and two-dimensional in a way, but mythic is, again, the word there. John Borman, who wrote and directed or co-wrote and directed Excalibur, went for in that 1981 film. And I enjoy Excalibur, but I'll put it this way. Like when people talk about Robin Hood movies, they say the definitive version would be the Errol Flynn one. I know there's the British television series from the 80s as well, but the Errol Flynn movie from 38 is just like a definitive rendering of our modern interpretation of those stories. Excalibur tries to be that for King Arthur, and it kind of is. It is pretty faithful to the general broad strokes of L'Amour de Arthur, or however you would pronounce that. But yeah, Excalibur is kind of a mess narratively because they squeeze shoehorn what could be, it should be a miniseries, frankly, of material into two and a half hours. So everything is just, it's coming at you like an 80s hard rock music video or something like it reminded me a lot of David Lynch's Dune. It's better than David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> Respectfully disagree, but I take it. <laughs> For those of you playing the drinking game where you have to drink every time we pronounce a word differently, um, <laughs> you're drunk now. So just a heads up on that. Not to show our cards too much on the Green Knight unless we're allowed to, Mark. But I would say that I did not like the movie very much. So a bit of a different reaction than David, but I will say that characterization was not one of its problems. But for, I think that a lot of attention was paid to painting some life into a couple characters in a way that just doesn't exist necessarily in some other properties. So I think that will be a, a pleasant surprise for you, Al, when you see that, that we get a little bit into the head of Gawain as well as King Arthur and a few additional characters. I'll just add to that, I actually agree with that, and we'll get into specifically how David Lowry really approaches it from a different way. But I think it's worth pointing out Excalibur is beautifully done, and for maybe listeners who haven't seen it, the best way to describe it, in my mind, is that Zack Snyder, certainly at the center of modern pop culture, for better or worse, has called Excalibur his favorite movie, the best film ever made. And once you know that, it makes so much more sense because this is very much like the 300 version of Arthurian legends, except without CGI and with more of a 1980s sensibility. So it's therefore better than 300. Or <laughs> I would argue is a better filmmaker, but it's sweaty, it's violent, it's full of nudity, including with John Borman's daughter, who plays a grain, gets raped by Arthur's father. Yeah, really early on. Yeah. Almost the first, like you go into this movie expecting like heroism and chivalry and the first 10 minutes is a bloodbath topped off with a really explicit rape scene. It was surprising. And that's John Borman's daughter, which tells you what he, he wanted to make Lord of the Rings and he couldn't get Lord of the Rings off the ground. So he made this instead. And it makes you wonder how that would have turned out. It's like the heavy metal version. But it is strangely faithful. Helen Mirren is great as Morgan Le Fay or Morgana. It's a crazy movie. Yeah, it is light on characterization because it has all these familiar people. Liam Neeson and Gabriel Byrne and these young parts. Helen Mirren gets to do a little acting. Patrick Stewart. Yes, yes. Helen Mirren and, and Merlin. Michael Williamson. Anyway, I was not familiar with his stuff. Yeah, he is. I did not like him in, in that. There are quite a lot of Merlin pratfalls. Yes, so he at least gets to do something that has some character attached to it, even though it's not a great character. But I think it might kind of go back to the source material. And again, there's such a, a large swath of source material you could draw from that certainly there are investigations hundreds of years ago, versions of these characters that are very richly developed. But the one that I listened to to sort of like get the broad scope, I know I read something when I was younger. I don't know exactly if it was the Once of Future King or something else. But I listened, I just looked on YouTube and I found The Legend of King Arthur and His Knights by Sir Thomas Mallory. But it's a retelling by James Knowles from the late 19th century. And it is so flat. It's just battle after battle. And the characters have no inner lives whatsoever. So it was like good to get a scope. You know, it's just a couple of hours listening to get an idea of 
how many stories there are and how they relate and how some of them actually repeat each other. And there is definitely a lot of material here that I, I could see. We haven't talked about yet. Guy Ritchie trying to start this recent full-on franchise with this Arthur the Legend of the Sword 2017. And it was only because it bombed at the box office that there aren't being six more of these made. But like, there's certainly the material there and an invitation to modern filmmakers to, as David Lowry did in The Green Knight, add actual characters here. Because like Gawain in particular is not at all consistent throughout these stories. And the Gwen the Green Knight story is not even part of Lamort d'Arthur. Like, even just how much younger is he than Arthur? Like, it's not consistent. It's like these names got attached after the fact to some of these stories. I'm not totally sure. William Neeson played Gawain in uh, King Arthur, and he had absolutely nothing to do with the Gawain and the Green Knight. He is not Arthur's nephew. And he had no acting to do in that movie either. <laughs> in Excalibur. What are your thoughts? I'm always fascinated by Hollywood groupthink, which I think is what we've seen with a lot of more recent Arthur movies. You mentioned the Guy Ritchie one, which was trying to be a superhero movie, start a shared universe like Marvel has kind of made that the buzzword of the last 10 years in Hollywood. Before that, there was the Antoine Fuqua gladiator light version that came out in 2004 with uh, Kira Knightley as a Celtic warrior Guinevere. What is everyone's thoughts on these uh, more recent kind of failed attempts to turn Arthur into what was popular? I certainly get it. I mean, source material is really just a starting point, right? I mean, what Mark described is like listening to the Bible of A beget B beget C or the Silmarillion or all these things. And it's just like, okay, go do something interesting with it and like take whether it's even a kernel or whatever and go make something of it. And yeah, we're going to rely a little bit on the fact that people know something and have some expectations. But as a filmmaker and a team of filmmakers, you can make it something special. And if your goal is to just sell tickets and popcorn and get a lot of people in and in kind of that lowest common denominator that you're talking about, David, like it's no surprise that these movies got greenlighted where maybe, you know, Hollywood works. There were other Arthur movies that were pitched that didn't get made that might have been way more interesting. There could have been something more like The Green Knight that just came out that didn't get made because someone read this and said, this is great. I'm going to pass on it because who's going to go see this? We need to make money on these things or whatever we need to do with these things. There was also a Robin Hood movie fairly recently, or a couple. Then they failed because the same exact thing. They were either Gladiator Light or they were whatever. And it just, they don't work, but you kind of shrug and say, okay, that was the wrong formula or the wrong filmmaker or the wrong star or the wrong whatever. And I have faith in this, that if I wait long enough, I'll get another shot at it, right? There will be another Arthur movie that comes along in 2020 something and probably again in 2020 something. So we'll see what happens. You would expect to see a lot of trash King Arthur movies for the same reason that you expect to see a lot of trash Sherlock Holmes movies, which is that both of those are in the public domain. It is easy for Hollywood to, like, if what they want to do is chase a trend, you may as well chase a trend with a public domain property so you don't have to pay a writer all that much to adapt it or whatever else. I don't know. David can talk about the economics of Hollywood. In the defense of Guy Ritchie, which is not a phrase that I thought I would be saying today, it doesn't strike me as absurd to think that Arthuriana is a place to go to answer Marvel in terms of developing an extended cinematic universe. And one of the reasons I think this is the case is, so I'm sure on this podcast, the creaky old take that superheroes are the mythology of the modern era has been done to death. But to that point, like the thing that Mark just said about Gawain, like you don't know how old he is, you don't know how old he is compared to all of these people, you don't know like who's specifically related to what, different characters play different roles depending on the story that they're in. This is stuff that is common across like superhero mythologies as well. You see different Superman movies, different Superman adaptations. What is important is not like how old Lex Luthor is compared to Superman or when they first met or what they've done together. That what's important is that Superman is Superman and that Lex Luthor is evil and wants to stop him. So you would expect that this kind of looseness concerning detail and this kind of vagueness concerning like the exact stories and the exact canon would translate really well to a superhero-ish kind of movie 
context because you're dealing with the same kind of raw materials, like larger-than-life characters involved in different discrete stories that don't necessarily have to line up particularly closely together. I'm sure that the reason they didn't work was more that they weren't particularly good films than anything else. But I can see at least why you would try to do that. Before we go on, let's have a brief ad break in which I will tell you about HelloFresh. Unlike the warmed-over contents of King Arthur Media, HelloFresh gives you fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable, which is why it is America's number one meal kit. Let's go through those three adjectives. Easy. I'm not a good cook. I don't have basic skills about how to cut things, how much of what spice to add, but HelloFresh does not require that experience from me. The recipes are easy to follow, quick to make, steps and pictures to guide you along the way. It makes it easier to plan meals, easier to eat healthier with their many options like low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian. Easy to set up your order and change it from week to week, so you can skip weeks, double up if you have guests, get larger box sizes for more servings, and of course, you don't have to go to the grocery store. So, easy. Now, fun. I've found that making these recipes with my kids is a wonderful bonding experience. Unlike box meals, unlike something frozen. It is fun to be responsible for creating something that I would never think of on my own, like spiced chickpea fritters, black bean and poblano flautas, Szechuan chicken quinoa bowls, Italian wedding soup. Finally, affordable. HelloFresh's gourmet recipes are, of course, more affordable, like 72% cheaper than the average restaurant meal. So it's going to feel just as fancy as something you've ordered takeout from a restaurant, but much, much cheaper. But did you also know that HelloFresh is 30% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store, plus the time and fuel that you save? Go to HelloFresh.com slash 14pretty and use the code 14pretty for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash 14pretty. Use the code 14pretty. Try HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Just to recount a little my cinematic experience going into this, I, I watched you know something close to 10 films in the last couple weeks going up to this, and I started just by searching King Arthur in my streaming services. And I got a lot of low-budget, free-to-watch kind of things. Watched the beginnings of a number of things, like one that I think was just called like King Arthur and His Knights or something very generic like that. And it ended up being, it's their descendants in the modern age, played by people who can't act at all, doing some sort of ninja moves. It, you know, like, no, no, this must stop immediately. So it was toward the end that I actually got down and like, okay, I'll figure out how, how to actually find these two that you recommended, uh, David. So the one that you mentioned with Keira Knightley and Clive Owen. Yes, mostly pretty bad. And in fact, I had just heard a critique by the great courses professor about how this was supposed to be historically accurate, you know, because it's like he's a Roman. He's somebody that worked for the Romans, but that it's just a completely absurd premise. Like these people are trying to win their freedom from service to Rome, win these papers that will enable them to cross the Roman Empire. And of course, nobody could read at the time. And their conceptions of freedom would have been totally different. Like, it's very, very anachronistic. So that sort of bugged me going into it. But then there were things that I liked about it. There was a fight on the ice that, as silly as it was, was a little stirring. (laughs) And just that all of his knights were like actors you recognize from various things. You know, Mads Mikkelsen... (laughs) I think one of the guys that carried over into the Green Knight playing the the host of the house, Joel Edgerton, plays this character. Anyway, so there are fun things about it. I guess one of the goofiest things that I'd heard about it was that it's shot like Braveheart, like Gladiator, but that because it was Disney associated, they forced them to remove all the blood after the fact, like do extensive carving. So it's like something that is just as visceral in terms of these up close fighting scenes, but yet entirely bloodless, which is weird. And disconcerting. I don't hate the movie. I think it's very flawed. I actually think Kira Knightley as this warrior princess version of Guinevere is kind of fun. Although how they get there and how they like incorporate Hadrian's Wall is very absurd in the Saxon invasion. To me, the problem a little bit with both of these movies, but we'll look, we'll focus on this 2004 one is I'm not against using intellectual property in the public domain to basically jump on the trends, which is describes it to a T. But to me, they were both movies 
suffer from they weren't passion projects it wasn't someone really wanted to tell a king arthur story it was in the early 2000s you had gladiator win best picture and make all that money and you know ridley scott would try and make it again with kingdom of heaven which i would argue the director's cuts very good he would then try and make it again again with his robin hood which was very bad but it just felt like someone was squeezing this property into a box and they had no real concern about what makes Arthurian stories fascinating. And I think that's why they're basically very forgettable movies. I agree that Arthurian legend, the fact that we're talking about how hard it is to squeeze all of the story of King Arthur into Excalibur's, what, two hour plus running time. You could literally do movies about every night. I just don't think Guy Ritchie was the person you hired to do that because I don't think Guy Ritchie wanted to make a King Arthur movie. And he didn't. I think he made a studio mess. But that's my take on both of those movies. Guy Ritchie is the guy that you would go to if you wanted like a gritty and personal retelling of something. And that just seems like an entirely wrong-headed approach to King Arthur. Like You don't want King Arthur to be gritty and real. So the beginning of that movie, which is sort of his, you know, not the very beginning, but after he's been separated and is, is being raised like, you know, a whorehouse basically. And it just shows him, there's a lot of montages. There's about six montages in this film. And this one is just him like whipping himself and just very gritty. And I kind of like that much. And I didn't mind. It might have been more dramatic. Like at one point he, this is another thing kind of like David Lynch's Dune of like, let's just compress a bunch of stuff. But in this case, it was like, uh, we're sending him into a cave of some sort to find himself and become the, the Arthur he is. And they just show like all these CGI creatures and things in a, again, a montage. So there's no actual drama to it, but it at least was fun, like a music video. You know, I wish it had done well. Like I would have said, wow, this is kind of a stupid movie, but like I would watch six more of them. It was good enough for me. There were enough good actors and fun things that were going on. But I'm going to keep flying in the face of my earlier statement that I didn't like Green Knight all that much. But one thing that I think it gets right is that Arthur himself seems like a somewhat intractable character. And the more in the background he is, I think sometimes the better. In the West Wing TV show, the original intent was to not have the president be a main character. He was going to be a real background character that just showed up every now and then and things happen in his shadow. And I think that might make for a more interesting story or, or maybe I just haven't seen, I'm not quite sure what makes that character tick still after all this time and after all the things that I've watched. Whereas again, for all the reasons I didn't like it, I, I think the green Knight, which again is just about uh, one of the nights. And in fact, it's actually a pretty short story that I feel like kind of got expanded into a movie in some ways. Not a hell of a lot happens in The Green Knight, referring to the original piece as well as the movie itself. So that gives you a chance to explore some things. Whereas when you're trying to jam in everything that happens in the Arthurian legends, you're just going to fail if you try to do that during a movie or likely even in a, a limited series. Maybe we should push toward our Green Knight films. So when I say films, uh, uh, the Green Knight being the third attempt, at least that I know of, to make this. So Brian, you had, you know, as soon as we kicked this off, you had said you had fond memories of Sword of the Valiant. Yeah, I'm going to from the earth. come out and say it. So <laughs> I was like, oh, I love Sword of the Valiant. And so then I rewatched Sword of the Valiant, which was made in the mid 80s and featured Sean Connery as the Green Knight. After having rewatched it, it is not great. It's possibly not good, but I love it. I still have such fond memories of it. And I watched it with my wife and she was a little confused that I was making her watch it. But I think by the end, she at least understood why I, as a teenager, liked it. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's part of my DNA now. So I, I'm glad I, I rewatched it. And I understand it was based the director essentially remade an earlier version that was done in the 70s on a much smaller budget and i think that might even be floating around on youtube i didn't take the time to watch it did anyone else i watched both of them coming into this and they are very close to each other it's just that the 80s one adds more jokes adds like how do i urinate in this armor here's a can opener like that's the quality of jokes <laughs> that were added but like most of the terrible stuff about the later movie is right there in the earlier movie they're very similar they're very similarly big, stupid protagonists. 
very uncharismatic. And I found them both silly and tedious. Like they were not fun for me. To me, the funny thing about both of them is, and I didn't realize this until I started watching, I watched them in the reverse order. I saw the 80s one because I heard it was the good one. And I watched the 70s one. And I was taken by both of them. I'm like, wow, they're making very similar choices in how to adapt this. Wow, they added the Lynette character who I'm not as schooled in who she is in Arthurian legend. She's not Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. I'm like, what are the odds? And then I realized, oh my God, it's a remake. And it is the same director of both films. The director of the 70s film, which does a few things better, I would argue. Not a lot. The 80s one has Sean Connery, so if you have to watch one. But he made the 70s one with almost no money, and he was unhappy with it, so he went to Canon Films, which was like the king of B-movies in the 1980s. And he's like, let me make my same story again, and this time we'll give it some class. We'll give it Sean Connery. For five minutes. There's five minutes of Sean Connery. That is a fantastic <laughs> story, and it makes so much sense. Like, as soon as, talking through that, and I was like, who, who would give somebody money to remake the same film, but probably not do as good a job of it. And then you said Canon Films, and it's just, that makes, absolutely makes sense. So Stephen Weeks is the director we have to blame for those two films. No, Sean Connery's charisma really makes his scenes so much better. I mean, whenever he is on screen, that movie comes to life. And, and I think that Ronald Lacey, tote from Raiders of the Lost Ark, playing a, a toady later on in the movie, was also quite enjoyable. I really apologize to, to both of you for, or all of you for like talking up this movie because it's not for everyone. In fact, it's possibly not for anyone, but it's for me. I mean, it's a real staple of canon films that you get the name actor and you shoot with them for like half a day and you stretch that footage out to fill up as much of the, the movie as you can. And if that's what they did with Sean Connery in this, it sounds like they did a real a-plus kind of movies job. So maybe I'll have to search that out. I'll have to say this about them. Is Ronald Lacey actually plays the same character in both versions. He did Raiders of the Lost Ark in between, so it's like, well, now he's got that Indiana Jones shine on him. We have to bring him back again. <laughs> but the 80s one's interesting in that, to me, I was not around at that point. But when it came out, I can clearly see it's cashing in on Dungeons and & Dragons. And this very childish but not yet disney-fied idea of what fantasy is like fantasy movies had not become big business for corporations in the sense that as much as i love lord of the rings you see what happened after lord of the rings came out and the disney renaissance had it happen so you could make something kind of be and silly and vaguely lascivious like that movie with the former tarzan who plays uh, Sir Gwen in that. I think his name's uh, Miles O'Keefe. And it's just this cheesy, beefy movie where Sean Connery comes in dressed like he's still in Sardaz. It reminds you there was a period between Bond and the Untouchables where he wasn't Sir Sean Connery yet. And it's just absurd. And it follows the story, not necessarily... It makes as many changes to the story, perhaps, as the new David Lowry movie. But thematically, unlike David Lowry... These movies have no concern about what Sir Gwen and the Green Knight's about, because without spoiling how the story goes and how the new movie goes. Well, maybe, maybe we should actually just say, like, the main plot beats of the story for people that just don't know it at all. Do you want to take a crack at that? Okay, so the basic story is Sir Gwen or Gawain, however you want to pronounce it, is the nephew of King Arthur. Although I'll point out that almost none of these movies, I think, acknowledge that his the king is named King Arthur. David Lowry definitely intends that. I would say Valiant does not at all, actually. But a green knight appears during a Christmas Day feast, or New Year's Day, depending on the version. And he is a supernatural entity who interrupts Camelot's feast and says he will play a game. Arthur or one of his knights can take a swing at him, strike him as hard as they wish with a sword or an axe, and he, in one year's time, he will return that blow. That is such a great setup, especially because Gawain cuts off the Green Knight's head, and the Green Knight doesn't die. He laughs, I'll see you in a year. And that's the beginning of the story. And every version pretty much captures that incident. But what happens afterward, they go in wildly different directions. And 
the end of the story is about Gwen having to face his fear and face death with the Green Knight in the Green Chapel. And just to finish this point I had on Valiant, what's hilarious to me is instead of being a metaphor about facing your death or finding honor and those things, which is what the story's about ultimately, it ends with Gwen tricking the Green Knight, Sean Connery's Green Knight, and they have an epic sword fight in a cave. And it's just entirely a movie of its era. Well, for whatever it's worth, right, in the the poem, the original 14th century that survives of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Green Knight does not cut Gawain's head off or even attempt to. I think he ultimately nicks him. There was a a second game that's played later on in the book where Gawain finds a, a host in the forest and they play a game of everything I get, I will give you and everything you find hunting, he will give to Gawain and there's an exchange of kisses from the Lord's wife and animals that are hunted in the forest. And it's very much a, it is a super standard story of chivalry. And I don't want to say morality, but like sort of morality overlaid on the chivalric ideals of behavior. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I think the, because I revisited the poem too in preparation for this. And what struck me about it is that it's not a straightforward story about honor because Gawain finds himself in a position of having conflicting obligations. And that's what makes the, the end of the poem super interesting. He's made different promises that he can't all keep together. That's why the Green Knight cuts him, leaves him with some injuries, says that's a punishment because you had to break one of your promises. Gawain goes back to King Arthur's court saying, oh, I failed. I haven't been able to uphold my honor. And they all go, oh, no, you're fine. You're the most honorable among us even though you had to break one of your promises. That's what I think, for me, at least sets it apart from other morality tales of the era like that you might find in Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, where it's straight. I mean, Chaucer is very, you know, very clever and tricksy, but a lot of those stories are at least on the surface straightforward tales of like the virtuous have good things happen to them, the vicious get their just desserts. And Gawain seems really interesting to me in, in the way that it diverges from that. And it seems to be more about the challenges of upholding a strictly chivalric moral position than the rewards of doing that. Oh, fair enough. I agree with that analysis. I think the fact that there is that compass that points in one direction and that he is still striving to go there despite the challenges is what makes it so much a part of its time. I'll just add to that. Gwen and the original story, so... We're spoiling something from the 14th century. He fails. <laughs> That's fine. He does fail in the sense that now in our modern eyes, it's ridiculous he failed. But maybe that's the point about the chivalric code in that specifically he is playing a game with the Lord and Lady of a manor, And he is sharing everything with the Lord he is given in the house, which is an absurd game. But when his the Lord's wife is trying to seduce him, She's kissing him and he's rebuffing it, but now he's kissing the Lord. And that's how he's trying to stay true to himself and true to be honorable to this Lord who is giving him shelter. However, she then on the last day in the story gives him a green sash or girdle that is supposed to protect him. And he does not tell the Lord this. The green sash is supposed to magically keep him from dying. So when he faces the green knight, the green knight nicks him because the green knight knows that he didn't tell the Lord, and therefore he didn't keep his word that he would share everything with the Lord he was given in the house. He fails because he had a fear of death, and he wanted to keep that green girdle. So even though he is the most honorable knight you can imagine while reading the story, he ultimately fails because, like all men, he fears death. So I guess that it would be probably very subversive for the 14th century. Unless you view chivalry as it's an ideal that you can never achieve, right? It's this goal that you strive towards and that you always fail because we're mortals and we're flawed, but that doesn't mean you don't keep trying for it. And he could still be the most honorable and have failed. Like those are mutually true things, I think. Facing his death is clearly a, like a really important theme in the poem and probably in the movie too. But he's also forced into the position of like not wanting to throw the lady of the manor under the bus, not wanting to refuse the gift that she was trying to give him, which was being given in good faith, not wanting to betray her by telling the Lord that she had given him this thing because she makes him promise not to. 
So the impossibility of being able to live up to the standards that he set himself is clearly a really interesting, like the acknowledgement of that is a super interesting thing about the poem. How does that crop up in the movie? Let's bring it all back home. Is that dealt with in the movie or are we talking more about the death stuff? Well, we should talk about to what extent this is a, a unified test that it's a game. It's like the Michael Douglas movie, The Game, where everything is set up, where explicitly in the original story, the Lord of the Manor is the Green Knight. And he reveals at the end, hey, that was me all the time that you were staying in my house. And I was just, you know, that was part of the test. And in the new movie, I don't think it is too much of a spoiler to say that it's actually set up by his his mother, who I guess is, do they say she's Morgana? Or is that just implied, right? It is Morgana being the sort of iconic sorceress, half-sister of King Arthur, who is not Gawain's mother in the other versions, but is a antagonist, I guess, in the other versions, but sort of after the fact and not organically to the story at all. It's just like, there was a woman that you saw somewhere in there. Hi, that was Morgan the Fay. Just, you know, as if it was just like, this is another character for, from Arthuriana that we're just going to throw in there. But here it seems like it's a, a unified test and we don't really get a lot spelled out about the motivation of that. Interestingly, the version of this that I listened to, I didn't go back to the original poem, but again, I, lo- I searched on YouTube and there was a 1904, very listenable modern English poem of this by uh, Charlton Minor Lewis. And in that one, at the beginning, he has a girlfriend who is like at the table at the feast with him, who is kind of resisting his proposals. And this whole thing is she's actually a fairy. And this whole thing is a test from her. So it's like her fairy friends, the Green Knight and other folks are coming out of the woodwork to test the metal of this guy. So there's usually some sort of evil force behind this, unlike in those Stephen Weeks movies, where it really just is. The Green Knight is the antagonist, and then he wanders around and meets a bunch of completely unconnected people. I think of the David Lowry movie, it's left. Besides, you know, that it's his his mother that is somehow behind this. The actual, like, the identity of the Lord of the Manor and the Green Knight, and perhaps the ruffian earlier on who roughs him up, maybe they're all the same person. I don't know. What did you guys make of that? I'll just say that I can confirm there was definitely Morgan Le Fay, who is his mother. I believe in the original stories, and I don't know which legend this is based on, but I read that Gawain's mother traditionally is Morgaus, who is the sister of Morgan Le Fay, and in some versions also the mother of Mordred, who may or may not be in the film. It's ambiguous. There's an empty chair at Camelot that Gawain assumes, and I wondered if that was Mordred because the son of the king. But to go back to what is happening in the new Green Knight, I did ask David Lowry directly, is that Morgan Le Fay? And he says, we did not give any of the characters other than Gawain, Essel, and Winifred a name. No one is named. King Arthur is just the King Merlin, is just the wizard. So Morgan Le Fay is in our story, and it is Gawain's mother. And we wanted to embrace what she did in the original poem, which was to have Morgan Le Fay be the character who's behind it all. But I wanted to make her aim, her plot, be integral to Gawain's journey. So the ambiguity is, what is her endgame? Because in the poem, it's a medieval, kind of, it's a funny idea. The whole Green Knight thing, Gawain getting mixed up in it is almost incidental. They basically wanted to have a magical Green Knight show up and be beheaded to scare Guinevere to death. That was the motivation behind this all in the original poem. And in the film, it's a lot more ambiguous because the Green Knight, he looks more like the pagan, whatever you would call it, a god or deity called the Green Man. He is made of the earth. He is not played by Joel Edgerton. He's played by Ralph Innocent. So I guess my question would be, what do you think the test, what is her endgame in all of this? I think we would have to reveal the very end of the film, which I think we want to wait and. I guess we're just about at the end of our time. So should we, (laughs) you can hold your ears if you want, Al, and people who haven't seen it can click off if they want, but we got to discuss. We need to gauge Al's desire. Maybe you already know how it ends. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to guess because I know that it's controversial. And my guess would be that Gawain is revealed to have died or to have been killed by the Green Knight after all. Is it something like that? Maybe. All right. So just to spoil. So part of one of the interesting things about the movie, which I should say, overall, I found the movie pretty annoyingly self-indulgent. I'm sorry that just the very long shots, they're beautiful. 
it's one of those movies that, you know, it's, it's very cinematic. If you're in the mood for it and just completely surrender yourself for it, it's good. But it is, you know, in the same way that a lot of modern art films are now, I wouldn't show it to my family, for instance. Like, I would not generally recommend it. Like, you got to be a, a movie snob, I feel like, to fully enjoy, viscerally enjoy this movie. But that said, there's, a, you know, wonderful performances and great moods that are set up. And one of the things, the tricks that is used a couple times is like he gets roughed up by some ruffians and he gets tied up and they like run off with his horse and things and they just show him he's now dead. He's, he's, he's a skeleton, but then they say, just kidding. (laughs) And like, you know, they go on with it. And so at the end of the movie is something similar where it sort of shows out if he just shied away and said, no, I'm not going to let you cut my head off, how he would have progressed it ends up being a kind of, you know, he gets everything what he wants, but it's a depressing life. And then backtracks like, nope, that's actually not what's going to happen. But the actual ending. So, you know, he subjects himself to the axe, but then they leave it totally ambiguous. It just stops. You know, it's in your imagination, whether it ends up like the poem where the green man was just kind of, this was a test. It's his mom testing him. You would think they would just want him to be brave, rise to the occasion and then go off and live his merry life. Or maybe he's dead. And that still would have been better than the vision that he had anyway. To just explain fully the ambiguity is, so he does have a vision that he ran away but pretended he passed the test. Arthur dies, he becomes keen, but he's a terrible keen. And basically Camelot falls and he eventually dies. And he abandoned the woman he really loved because she was a peasant. He had a terrible life even though he became keen in this vision. And so then he realizes that there's no honor if you can't be true to yourself or something to that effect. So he takes the green sash off and he reveals it to the green knight when he comes back to the moment in the green chapel. And the green knight, Lowry did describe this scene. He said he gave the actor who plays the green knight the note to play it like Santa Claus. So he comes down and like <laughs> gently caresses Gwen's face and says, very good, very good. Now, little knight, off with your head. And it cuts to hard black. So it- it's up to you whether the Green Knight really is about to cut his head off or not, whether it was a joke or not. Off with your head and the rest of you. Off with you. Have a good day. <laughs> if you've seen any references to Scorsese in reviews or titles or whatever related to this, and I had, but I didn't know what the reference was until I saw the movie, it was in reference to Last Temptation of Christ. This idea that Christ not getting crucified and going and living a full life and then kind of in the moment kind of zapping back to the critical moment we're in, and then instead he does get crucified and fulfill his destiny. And it very much, there's this big discussion of great versus good, which is a total modern idea, right? Living a good life or becoming great. And to David, you asked sort of what the motivation was behind all this. I feel like his mother, like we wouldn't be talking about Sir Gawain if he didn't go on this adventure, but he did. And he's part of our cultural lexicon because he had this experience and maybe does or doesn't get his head cut off. That's his greatness. But being great in kind of that big, large sense and being a good person, are those are things that are at odds with each other in this movie and are actually spoken pretty explicitly, I think, by Essel. Well, in my, I guess as the one person who really liked this movie, and probably a film snob, that might be accurate, but obviously it's visually gorgeous. The clear thing to say, it's very painterly. It has the look of a gorgeous, either a 19th century painting or a 1980s fantasy novel. Either way would describe how every shot of this film looks almost. And it goes for a surreal and ambiguous quality. And I know the aloofness, like a lot of A24 movies, this is from the studio, the indie uh, studio and distributor that released The Witch and Hereditary, Midsummer. So it's in that vein And I know that turns some audiences off, but they give artists the space to really make thought-provoking and challenging films. And I think your interpretation is entirely accurate and fair, but I took away something very different in that with the knowledge that the mother is uh, Morgan Le Fay, I feel like if she's functioning the same way as she does in the poem, then she's the old lady in the castle, which starts explaining other elements such as why does the lady in the castle look like the peasant Gwen loves? And it's all an illusion. It's a magic trick. They want him, the witches want him to survive with the green sash. The test 
of the it's a much more graphic test that Gawain fails in the castle with the lady when she tries to seduce him. They want him to take the green sash so he'll live and become king, like Morgan Le Fay or Morgos or however you want. Some motherly figure wants Mordred to become king in the old Arthurian tales. And this is kind of like her trying to make Gawain king. That's my interpretation. And they were trying to manipulate him to take the green sash to become great and to have this to become Arthur's true heir. And when he realizes what life would be like if he went down that road, he chooses death. And my interpretation, he was beheaded. And I I wrote an article about that and plenty of commenters say, no, you're wrong. The Green Knight loves him now and they're going to be friends and go off and live frolicking in meadows or something. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> debating stuff that doesn't happen on camera like are we spending our time on that <laughs> i um my main beef was the director's unwillingness to stop reminding us that we're watching his very clever movie and really worked in midsummer and, and to mention another you know movie from the same studio and i think part of it was i did get drawn into that story and even though it was very self-aware movie making. I think it worked. And in this, it just didn't. And every time I started settling in, there'd be another thing that would just jangle me back out of it. Like, oh, yeah, you're super clever guy. I get it. But now I'm just like, yeah, I'm I'm watching you do your thing. And your thing is is a super cool. But I, I left really feeling pretty empty by the end of it. And it was also one of those things you heard tales from film festivals about people yelling cut at the screen when they've decided that the director has just gone too long. <laughs> I can imagine people shouting cut at this movie at various points. It's like, yep. All right. <laughs> On to the next shot. But again, I totally see why, you know, this thing had, you know, whenever you see a super high, I think it was like 80 something tomato meter, but you know, 50% audience score, you always kind of, know what kind of movie it's going to be when you see that kind of disparity between those two scores. So it, it did not fail on that front. Well, I'll just say that a lot of A24 movies have that. The Witch, which I think is like the best horror movie of the last 10 years, had that disparity. And so did either Hereditary or Midsummer. I don't remember. One of the Ari Aster horror movies provoked that kind of reaction. And yeah, I'm on the critical side because the movies that really linger, the, even if they kind of infuriate you in a way, it's making you feel something. You're not complacent while watching it. And I value that. The thing that A24 movies, especially The Witch, do for me is they are unashamedly cinematic. The word you used was painterly, which I think was, is absolutely right. But it is clear whenever you watch one of their films that they're interested in using the medium of cinema to do the work. And if that's what's going on in The Green Knight, then you completely understand why people are going to hate it. But that sounds like a very valuable approach to me. And I'm really glad that we seem to be living through a period, I guess, because of the economic demise of the traditional film industry, where there is space for these kind of movies to get made and see a fairly wide release. Yeah, I didn't have the most wonderful time watching it moment to moment, but when it was done, I'm like, I kind of want to see that again. I, I, I want to, not just for the purposes of this, this discussion, but like it did have an effect. And I see David Lowry also made A Ghost Story, which is one I, I watched on streaming recently and enjoyed that quite a bit too, in the same like super slow, very little is happening moment to moment way. But like, it's okay. You just, you just live in that world a while. And so I think I will, uh, I'll call myself a fan of his. I'm going to watch more of his stuff. Well, thanks to all of you. David Crow, thanks so much. I'm excited to read more of your your material. And Al Baker, thanks for coming back. Can you guys both stick around for a few minutes for the supporter audio so we can talk about potential future interactions? Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Brian. Yeah, thanks for letting me back on after I tried to get out. You keep pulling me back in. Missing a whole one episode since last time you were on. I guess that's Uh, right. All right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners. Again, you can check uh, patreon.com slash pretty much pop if you want to hear us continuing to talk a little bit. So long. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy vs. Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.